you're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Duca Hoops, who is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research and the scientific manager of the Amsterdam unit of ELIS, the European Laboratory for Learning and Intelligent Systems. Duca's PhD thesis is titled Hierarchy and Interpretability in Neural Models of Language Processing, which she completed in 2020 at the University of Amsterdam. We talk about her PhD work, which investigated the aspects of hierarchical compositionality and syntactic structure that can be learned by recurrent neural networks, and how these models can serve as explanatory models of human language processing. We talk about her work on what compositionality actually means and how we should measure it, interpretability methods, synthetic versus natural language, and a whole lot more. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Duca Hoops with Hierarchy and Interpretability in Neural Models of Language Processing on the Thesis Review. Yeah, so in your thesis, you discuss various different aspects of of language. Just a fun question to start. Do you have a favorite aspect of language? I I really love this question. Actually, I, I, I used to start presentations very often with explaining people my my favorite part of language which i think like most easily said would be would be grammar so i really and and all its different facets so i really love that language is 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 very structured and looks very very complicated but at the same time we can all learn it and when i um when I learn new languages, I, I have to say that recently I haven't been studying a lot of new languages, even though I've been working on, uh, on French as I uh, moved to Paris. But when I start learning a new language, I, um, what I like to start with is always verb conjugations, <laughs> because I feel that when you, when you master that, you can all of a sudden say a bunch of things already with a very little amount of study. And then, well, after that, in the beginning, you feel like you're going very quickly. But then after that, you realize, okay, I can say some basic things, but to get further, it becomes more difficult and more difficult and more difficult. So recently, I think that is that is another part that I really, really like about language, that there is this tension between being super structured and also there's a lot of stuff that goes outside of that and you have to, and you have to yeah, memorize that or, or master that too. And it seems very, very complicated, but at the same time, we all, we all share that. Like, we don't have any trouble conversing with each other. And that I, I, I find it really quite magical, actually. 
yeah, so there's this mixture of the structure and maybe that contributes to this like initial, um, yeah, I, I've also been trying to learn different languages over, over time. And there is like some initial sense of like, oh, I'm learning everything really quickly. But then kind of like the complexity of everything hits you at some point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think also people learn languages in a different way. Some people yeah. like to, to indeed be exposed to a lot of a lot of language and then that helps them getting bits and pieces and stringing it together later. For me, I really like, also because I really like grammar. I studied, I studied also Russian at the university for, for two years. And I, I just love how, how complicated that is and studying all these different rules and trying to use them to, to make new sentences. That is, that is something that I really enjoy. Cool. And then, so when you were get start, when you were getting started, like before the PhD and leading up to it, what was your background and was it in language or something different? No, it was actually, I, I did a bachelor's in, in physics, even though I, I did also study language throughout. So I, when I started, um, when I was in high school, so I, I, th- I always liked language. Like I can honestly not remember a time that I wasn't obsessed with how language works. Even when I was little, I was, I liked trying to learn new languages and looking at them. And then when I was in high school, I, I thought about studying linguistics or doing something with the, um, with the brain because that, that was my second sort of obsession. I liked language and I was very interested in how that works in human brain. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't want to, I, don't know, I didn't want to study medicine and to really do something with brains. I guess that's, uh, that's the path to go. So that one, uh, that one, uh, I had to take off my list and then linguistics. So I I did quite a bit of linguistics during my bachelor's, but I I chose to study physics mostly because I liked to do something technical. And I felt that it was, it would be difficult to, from linguistics, go back to something very technical. Mm -hmm. I also really liked astrophysics. So I thought if I, if I study physics, that was, I don't know, maybe like the, the, the thing that I thought was the most difficult for me. And also had this astrophysics dimension. Then I can, I can maybe later go, um, go, to, go also back to studying language. And, and actually, I mean, I obviously couldn't have planned it this way, but it worked out quite well for me. Because after, after doing physics, or the bachelor in physics, at some point I realized that I was quite good at discovering the structure of problems. And I was getting quite high grades because of that, but I'm not really, like, I don't really have that physics intuition. Mm. <laughs> so that felt like maybe I wouldn't really be a very good physicist. So then I moved to studying logic where I thought, okay, there it's really about abstract problems and, and maybe that's more suitable for me. And when I started to study logic, I actually didn't realize that it has such a strong connection also with language like that there's a, a substream subdiscipline within there that really looks at, at, at language and I, I think I was super lucky with that choice because when I studied logic I also got in um, in touch with uh, the artificial intelligence people at the University of Amsterdam and I got the opportunity to do a lot of language courses both from a philosophy perspective computational perspective a bit more linguistics and still combine that also with my my technical knowledge and yeah like the the knowledge in physics maybe didn't come in directly handy in the sense that it's not that then i the fact that i knew something about quantum mechanics or calculus or something well actually calculus and linear algebra were very very useful at the point that uh, neural networks came in because of course these kind of things are uh, 
are very useful skills to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's probably more the kind of abstract set of ways of thinking that you learn along the way to solving these. Yeah, exactly. Indeed, it's mostly like the way of thinking. Like I think physics is really a very proper fundamental program where where they know how to cover all their bases, so to say. Like it's 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 much older than than even things like artificial intelligence that they really have programs in that. So it's very well structured. But of course, sometimes sometimes I think also I don't know now that quantum physics, for instance, is coming back. Uh, or is is making its way also a bit to uh, to artificial intelligence. Sometimes I also think, ah, maybe I should start studying that a little bit again to mm. um, to see it might might come in handy, like the actual physics knowledge, even though I'm not working on that right now. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. We also had uh, Karen Ulrich on the podcast, and she had a physics background as well, and now is in machine learning and working on things like compression. Yeah, we were also talking about how kind of the general toolkit was useful as a background. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And then, so then how did you, so you said you did this master's in logic. How did you then kind of make the jump to decide to do a PhD? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, I I don't remember. I I don't think it was a, it was as much as a question for me as it is for some others. Like, I think I'm a very researchy person to to put it like that like i have the right type of personality to do research so i i just really wanted to do a phd like it wasn't even really a question for me i really like i really like doing doing research so it wasn't as much of a jump although it took me a bit to uh, to find an appropriate phd position especially since i didn't want to leave amsterdam and of course having that restriction makes it a bit more difficult but in the end, I was super lucky to to find a like a a perfect position um, with uh, with Willem Zaidema, who was my uh, my supervisor, which I I honestly think I I couldn't have I couldn't have done better. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. One thing that you mentioned in the introduction to your thesis is kind of giving a backdrop of where things were at when you started, uh, and I think you you had discussed on like maybe you started with some initial goal and it changed. So I don't know if you could think back, like when you're starting with the PhD, could you have kind of predicted what it eventually would, would have been about or did that kind of change over time? Yeah, no, I absolutely couldn't have predicted that. There has been such a major paradigm shift hmm. during my PhD. Sometimes I think about it also, when I'm um, last year, I was teaching uh, some some bachelor course about about natural language processing, and I think about how much has changed since I was studying, like even since I was doing my masters, where neural networks were sort of like a side note of, you know, there is also this thing that Elman did where they try to make a more cognitively plausible model of uh, of language processing. But of course, that wasn't an actually like an actual model that anyone could use. So indeed, when I started, I, I mean, it was the, sort of the beginning of the neural wave, but it didn't really work very well yet. And I think that my, my, um, my supervisor, he was, um, I don't know, he was a bit like I, I, he he caught on to the fact that this was something that might might become big somehow. So in the beginning, our goal was to basically like 
now when you say it, it sounds sounds almost a bit insane. Like how did you think that that was going to work to make a to make a hybrid model that would uh, take the best of symbolic approaches and the best of uh, of neural approaches. And I mean, in a way, that is what I ended up doing. It's just that when when I started, we thought that that was actually something that was a feasible PhD project, which obviously it isn't because many, many people are trying and have tried and, uh, and that is still a very difficult thing. So this idea of uh, we can start from a neural model and have a symbolic model and then think about what the best things are and combine them. And then we have a, a very nice neural semantic parser that that didn't work out. So what happened, I think, is first I thought, OK, let's set, let's look what these neural networks uh, are doing, because I realized if I want to combine symbolic models and neural networks, I need to understand what neural networks are doing. Now, also that, as you can imagine, I, I relatively quickly figure out that asking the question, what is a neural network doing is not something that you uh, you solve in a week. So that's why I started working on interpretability and trying to figure out what they're actually doing. And also that at that point, I think it was like rather a niche topic, but it has grown so, so much now that I can really not even keep track of all the efforts that people are doing uh, anymore. And in the end, I, I ended up working a lot on that. So instead of actually doing a lot of modeling, trying to uh, incorporate uh, knowledge, like symbolic knowledge about language to make new models, I used symbolic knowledge about language and other kinds of knowledge about language to analyze models. And I think that maybe I found it even more exciting in the end than actually making a new model because analysis, I think for me, it's very close to discovering more also about language. And this, I think, is something that I, I, I really enjoy a lot, that when you're doing analysis, you need to really think, what are the questions that I'm asking? How are they related to what I think language is? Is that actually reasonable? How do I measure that? Go back to language. Oh, but wait, does that actually look like that when I, when I'm in a, when I go in a corpus? So yeah, it was a bit of a transition. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that kind of the goal was to do this combination of symbolic and neural. And then you said that actually, in some sense, you did end up doing that, but maybe in a different way. Would an example be um, these different ways that you started to, like the different tasks that you started to construct to evaluate the compositionality of different networks? And those were kind of symbolically driven or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so I think the first, say, now I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm moving more and more to real natural language. I have also looked at that in my, uh, in my thesis, but I also looked a ton at artificial languages. Indeed, because they are very, they're easy to analyze and we have a lot of symbolic knowledge about them. Mm. So indeed, the first, uh, the first data set that I used, which actually I wasn't the one that uh, proposed that data set, it was a, a colleague of mine at the time. Uh, was the arithmetic language, where which is obviously like a very recursive problem where you can very easily formulate a ton of symbolic strategies. And I analyzed how uh, recurrent, super, super small recurrent neural networks with 15 units, one layer, <laughs> would, would, uh, would process this, uh, this language. And then indeed, in the, I think in the compositionality, uh, in the compositionality work, the, the, the compositionality decomposed paper, 
there that came back, I think, even stronger because it was, well, more closely related to, to language. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good example. Yeah, and then the focus in the thesis was on recurrent networks. You know, like these transformers, for instance, hadn't really taken off yet. <laughs> nope. And I, I found it interesting that it seemed like a motivation was to try to connect this connect the recurrent networks to be explanatory models of what humans are doing. So was this kind of, is this something you're interested in, this connection with human cognition? Or is it kind of like a higher level motivation? I think both. So I'm, I'm very interested in the connection with humans for, for several reasons. So I think, I mean, the, the, the sort of like, fundamental or obvious reason is that I'm, I'm just interested in how these things might work in humans. So that is more of a curiosity driven reason. But also I'm very convinced that, especially when it comes to language, much less than in vision, for instance, I think human language is, it's very related to humans. Like it's a product of our brain. And it seems very unlikely to me that the key to understanding it doesn't have anything to do also with with our brain. So in that sense, it's a it's a bit of a two way street. I think if you understand how humans process language, that might actually help you a lot also in improving improving models. Mm-hmm. And then that indeed that puts me in a in a bit of an awkward position when it comes to <laughs> to newer to, well the newer I keep calling them newer. Of course, they've been around for a, for a while now. Uh, transformer and attention-based models because in recurrent models of course it's a it's an abstraction and it's not that a neuron in a recurrent network is like a neuron in the brain and there are many many differences I mean many especially in the beginning of my PhDs there were I was very often uh, very uh, sometimes quite harshly I have to say critiqued by neuroscientists that really couldn't understand how we could possibly think that uh, that recurrent neural networks were uh, were a reasonable model of the uh, of the brain, which yeah, of course they aren't, but they do share some things with the brain that I think are important. And one of these things is that they is the order in which they receive input. So in a recurrent and and in a recurrent neural network, you you proceed you you keep this temporal structure. It processes incrementally, and even when there is a tension that can look back there is still this notion of past and future, which in a, I mean, in a mass language, so in a mass language model, obviously this is just evaporated completely because it sees everything and it needs to predict something in a relatively arbitrary place. That's also the reason that some tests are very difficult to do with mass language models or strange to do with mass language models, like things like processing particular syntactic constructions they seem very weird if you already know what's what's going to be the rest of the it's a sentence and yeah so i i don't know i haven't completely made up my mind about it in the beginning i was very strong on no i don't want to analyze transformers because what are they going to tell me about humans they have no they have no incremental processing now i'm thinking that they might tell us other things about human language mm-hmm. and also of course there are many situations in which humans also don't process incrementally in the sense that so for instance machine translation or translation this is something that 
you might read the sentence incrementally, but when you're translating, you're probably going to look back to it. So maybe in that case, a model like a transformer, at least a model with attention, is actually much more much more close to what we would actually do. But still, I think it's it's very interesting to 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 analyze recurrent models, also because in recurrent models, um, the the flow of information is much much clearer. Hmm. If you if you catch my drift. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. That there's this temporal aspect which does seem kind of natural. Uh, and then it does seem like with transformers, maybe we we just need something that could get as close as possible to being able to do language. And then whatever model that ends up being, it'll be interesting to like inspect how it, how it does so. So maybe that's one way of thinking about transformers, even if initially they might not look like a natural model, which corresponds with humans. Yeah, I agree. I think indeed that it's for that reason, it's very interesting also to look at them and do analysis with them. And also at some point I, I was chatting with, uh, with a professor who pointed out to me that when, so when it comes to linguistic models, there are actually also a ton of models that are, that are static. Like there is a, there is a distinction between a model that you have of language and a model that you have of language processing. And I might think that in the end, how we process language is very relevant, but that doesn't mean that static models, um, like a context-free grammar, for instance, it doesn't necessarily also have any notion of, like, of course, you can make a left corner parser or you can make a top-down parser or a bottom-up parser or whatever, but th those are two separate things. So you have the model that you think might be appropriate and then you have how it's how it's being processed. So I don't know, it could be that the transformer models can give us some key insights in the, in the structure of language, despite the fact that they don't process it in uh, that they don't have this temporal uh, temporal notion so strongly. So maybe we could start talking a bit more specifically about some parts of the thesis. So like the title is Hierarchy and Interpretability in Neural Models of Language Processing. So maybe going to this arithmetic language that you mentioned, what were some of the kind of specific things that you were looking into with this language? Uh, like we could start to yeah talk about these different aspects of hierarchy or compositionality that appeared throughout a lot of the thesis. Yeah. Um, so in the in the in the language with arithmetics, it was really designed to look into uh, the nested level of hierarchy. So um, mm -hmm. the the sentences in that language were expelled out arithmetic expressions, but only with plus and minus. So and uh, so it would be something like bracket, bracket, five plus three, bracket, minus seven, something like that. And this allowed for very easy, um, like making sentences longer and deeper, etc. Like you have a lot of control. And also what was very nice is that in natural language, um, even if you have a very structured language, it's not so straightforward to, to have a model predict its meaning because often that's very context dependent and right. I don't know, we don't have super good meaning representations. And this problem was super solved by using arithmetics because it's very clear what the meaning of seven plus two is because it should be nine. So we would have just networks predict the outcome of the expression. 
And what we wanted to look at basically is, is if these models process this recursive language really in a recursive way. Well, actually, initially, I think when we designed this language, and this, this also happens uh, more often to me, is we, we, we thought, okay, this, this seems very difficult and uh, models are probably not going to be able to learn that. And then we can, that is a result in itself. But actually models, even recurrent models, like simple recurrent networks, they're not very good at that. The, the ones without any gates. Mm -hmm. But the GRE and the LSTM already, already did, a, did a pretty good job. So then we thought, okay, we, we want to investigate how that's working. So how do these models process a super hierarchical language? And one, one key thing that I learned there is that you can think that you have uh, written down all the potential protocols, but your neural network is very likely to actually found one that you didn't even think of, which is something that I like a lot about neural networks. Like they, they can really help you find creative new ways to, to solve problems. That is interesting. And as I was reading through, I, I almost had the same feeling. I was like, hmm, is this about to be about how the model is going to fail on this task? But then, yeah, it was like surprisingly good it seems like you really went in depth looking at how this was working. So like one of the things was to separate whether it was using this cumulative strategy or recursive strategy. And I think in order to do this, mm -hmm. you then had this method called diagnostic classifiers. Yeah. How, how did this diagnostic classifiers method, um, what was kind of the backstory behind it? Cause I think this is kind of a really general idea. Yeah, th th that's very true. So interestingly, when I think back of this, I remember very well the meeting where we came up with this idea. But somehow I don't really remember. I don't know. I do remember some sort of moment where we were like, oh, wait, maybe we can actually just train classifiers to predict these properties and in that way analyze them, analyzing the hidden representations. And it was I don't know when we when we said that out loud it seemed so simple that we couldn't we couldn't re believe that we hadn't thought of that before <laughs> and actually I think also so this is something that of course also by no means it's uh it's it's it was new and maybe it wasn't used in in our field as, as as such but I at the time I was in a large consortium where there were also uh, computational neuroscientists and neuroscientists that said, yeah, we've been doing this for ages with brain data. So why, why are you presenting this as if it's a new technique? <laughs> and there were, uh, there were at the same time also a few others that, uh, that proposed the same kind of technique. So now I think it's more widely known as, as probing classifiers. There was then also um, others that called it auxiliary tasks. I like the I like the the name probing classifiers also, but I also still like the name diagnostic classifiers on which we had a a long brainstorm uh, session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, do you remember any? I mean, maybe you actually hinted at it there that like the model was kind of surprising in the way it solved the task. But yeah, do you does any like particular result jump out here as being surprising at the time or kind of memorable? Yeah, so what I remember is that I thought, okay, I can come up with two different ways of, um, of, of, of solving an arithmetic expression incrementally, which is making, um, making really like a, a fully uh, recursive protocol where you keep a stack 
where you keep track of the operators and you keep track of the of the numbers and then you, you so basically just a linearized linearized version of a recursive um, protocol and then the other thing uh, that's what you just referred to this cumulative strategy i thought is okay you can actually also make a stack where you just keep the keep the operators so that is not really recursive the thing that you would do is just you keep your current subtotal and based on your operator stack, you can figure out if when you see an X number, you should add it or subtract it from your current mm -hmm. subtotal. So I thought, okay, this it has to do either one of those things because I couldn't, I couldn't think of uh, <laughs> of another solution. And then in the end, what it turned out to be doing was some version of this cumulative strategy, but it would only count the minuses, like. If there were no minuses, it wouldn't do any. It wouldn't keep any, any trace because you don't need it. So this knowing what happens with the next number and whether it flips or not, if you see a minus, it becomes only relevant after you've seen a particular uh, minus. So I, 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 when training these diagnostic classifiers, I realized that it was probably keeping some sort of minus stack rather than a full operator stack. Mm. Yeah, I see. Yeah, and then from here, there's this other data set. PCFG set. Did this come afterwards? Was this kind of the next thing you worked on? Or um, yeah, what was kind of the backstory behind this? I think that one actually has a great backstory uh, because I, so how this started, uh, we were, we were in four. There were two, um, two student, master students, both super smart. Um, one is now working at a, at a startup, I think. Uh, the other one, Farina Donker, she's doing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh. I'm still collaborating with her uh, with her a lot. And I was very frustrated about all the work coming out uh, about compositionality in neural networks. And my main frustration was that I felt that it was very, like, I didn't understand it. And I, I, I still have that a lot is that compositionality is something that is assumed to be super, super important for language. But at the same time, it's very, well, I don't want to say ill-defined, like it has a very clear definition, but practically speaking, it's very unclear what that means. Like when you ask people what is compositionality, they say something like, ah, this refers to the ability to recombine known components into um, new phrases and this way we can generalize the things we've never seen before, etc. And to me, it seems um, it seemed at the time fairly obvious that neural networks were using some form of compositionality because how can you ever generalize uh, to an unseen example if you're not recombining what you've seen in the training set? Like it seemed almost trivial to me. So I really didn't understand then what these data sets that were coming out then, and in particular, there was a scan, which is used a lot and also very well cited. I, I wasn't really sure what that meant for a model not to be compositional. So we started digging into that. And also there, of course, my, my background in logic and also philosophical logic where compositionality is a, is a big theme. Also, there are a lot of researchers at the ILC or that have been at the ILC that have been working on the, the Institute for Logic, Language and Computation, where I did my PhD, that have been working on compositionality. So we started to do a lot of theorizing and like find digging in literature, like what does it mean to be compositional? How have people tested this? What are different facets of it? And we started to build these compositionality tests initially for 
uh, both natural language and an artificial data set. And interestingly, actually also there, um, when we started out, we thought, okay, we're going to make this data set that is super compositional and it can only be solved in a compositional way. And we're going to train some models and it's going to fail. And then we can see, we can then think of different aspects of compositionality, such as generalizing to longer sequences or systematic recombinations of things that you haven't seen before or processing locally, like really unpacking the, the tree or dealing with synonym substitutions. And then we can basically see how well that aligns with this overall compositionality score and also figure out which of these things are, are, are might be more important. Mm -hmm. And then we trained our models and they were actually really good at this data set that we thought could only be solved if you were super compositional and super deep. <laughs> so that put us uh, immediately in a bit of a conundrum. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, yeah, like with the arithmetics, actually, I, I, I apparently I hadn't really properly learned <laughs> from that. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think as a, as a field, we're like constantly surprised by these neural methods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's also one of the cool things, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed this aspect. So it was basically saying like, yeah, we have this idea floating around compositionality, but like, what do we actually mean by it? And like, what do we actually want to test? And personally, I find so much value in like really clarifying what it means and these different aspects. So I really like this. There was these five different categories, like systematicity, productivity, localism, substitutivity and overgeneralization. And so maybe the, the podcast format isn't the best to like go through the definition of each, but um, yeah, I like this different, this different breakdown. Like an example is this systematicity. So you gave this example of like, if you understand brown dog and black cat, then you should understand brown cat. <laughs> so that's like one of these classic things. Yeah, yeah. that's a classical one from Savo, yeah. <laughs> and um, it did seem like in the results, some of the transformers were struggling with some of the aspects. Like I think it was maybe localism. Mm -hmm. Did you have a sense that the models still were struggling in, in some sense? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, the scores weren't perfect. And also one, one thing that I found quite striking, which was um, one of the follow-up experiments of the, of this localism test is that, um, when when we did some analysis of the results, we discovered that there were very specific things that they were that they were failing on, namely. Um, so we put a cap on how long the the input sequences could be. Like, how do I say this better? So the input sequences would be some operators applied to sequences of strings, and we put a cap on how long these sequences of strings uh, could be, which was five. And then we discovered that in this localism test, we would basically unroll the, the computation. So we would say, okay, instead of giving you the entire sequence, we would give you a subtree, compute it, then give the output of the model, uh, embed it in like the next subtree and unroll the computation to get, um, to basically understand if we unroll the computation, is this the same as if we give it, uh, if we give the entire sequence immediately? Because if that is the case, that uh, indicates that wrong or not, the model is doing some sort of unrolling of the of the sequence. And then we discovered that if the unrolled sequence would give a new sequence 
that had a, a string longer than uh, than this this cap that we had five that it would make a lot of mistakes. So to give an example, um, if you do something like copy, repeat, A B C D, then when you enroll it, you would first ask the model to do repeat A B C D, and it would give you maybe if it was correct, it would give you A B C D A B C D. And then you would give the model copy ABCD, ABCD. And it wouldn't be able to do that if this string was longer than, than five. And initially, so this sounds like a classic productivity kind of argument, like models don't generalize to longer sequences. But in this particular case, I think it was, it was striking because it was just in the input. And the output, like the output, the target was the same. So it wasn't any issue with generating your EOS to, to quickly or something like that. Like we knew it could generate that output. And then when we, we did some additional experiment where we, where we investigated what happens if you, if you gradually increase this, um, the length of the string. And you saw that for many of the models, this was the strongest for the LSTM, but it was also very strong for transformers. It was a little bit less strong for convolutional networks. It was really like a hard cut. Like it could do perfect for up to string length five. And then it would just go down, not gradually, as you maybe would expect if, okay, that's longer, it's more 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 difficult, like maybe you have more errors or something like that. No, it really just like jumping off a cliff goes straight to zero. And that I think, I think really, I, I was quite surprised about that because I think that's very inconsistent with the idea that it has actually understood what it means, for instance, to copy something. Because if you understand what it means to copy something, maybe you'll have more difficulties when you copy something that has length eight. I mean, I would have more difficulties if I didn't have a pen of paper. Copying something of length two is much easier. But it's not that I would not be able to do it at all anymore. Like you expect it, it goes down mm -hmm. gradually. And that I found, I found it very surprising. And then have you seen like, in general, what's your sense like is compositionality are these different types of generalization? Is this like a fundamental difficulty still with our current methods? Uh, I mean, like here it's beginning to hint that there, there might be, or is your sense that in general, like the methods are getting better and better at this over time? This is a, a, a very good question, but it's also, it's a very difficult question <laughs> because yeah, and I'm not sure. So I think that I mean, it's clear that there are some things that neural networks are not very good at that humans are good at. And in particular, like the problems that we're having still recently, I think, is that models that are not trained on a lot of data, that they just don't work very well. And like there are a lot of improvements by adding more data, but that that is not always available, of course. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 really a really a tough question. I think there are still some improvements to make there, but I think for me, what is very interesting also is this is this sort of tension between this the feeling that we have that things like systematicity and compositionality are very important for a natural language, and the fact that we think that neural networks are not so able to do that, but still they can do a lot of things that we thought they would never be able to do. And what I really like about that is that it doesn't only make us think about 
how we can improve models, but also really it forces us to, to sharpen our thoughts about what kind of things are required to model language and also for humans. And I think that is something that is really cool. I find it very exciting. Yeah, so this is a question of like, to what degree is compositionality important? And then probably going back to the, to what we we're discussing about, like how you define it, which parts of it do we actually care about with language or, and how do we measure them? Exactly. So recently I've, so I feel that the most, the most interesting um, test for me now that is it, we, we, so we've been working on extending this test to natural languages. I, as I said, initially, when we started that project, we actually had the idea to define, define this test simultaneously on an artificial data set and for natural language. And then by basically comparing the results, we could figure out which things were more important for natural language. In the end, that didn't quite work out in part because it's really very difficult to extend these things to natural language if you want to use real natural language or so not like a subset that is actually like a synthetic language, but just with natural language words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in part because well, the paper that we wrote about it as is, it's like 40 pages and has several different dimensions. We didn't really want to mm-hmm. add more content, but we have been working on that. Uh, ever since and I think the, the the thing that is the most interesting to compare is this is this local locality so this localism test and why I think this is so interesting is because I think that there is really a, a strong tension between what humans might do and what um, what models especially transformers are doing and what I mean by that is that I think transformers are very good at taking into account a lot of context to disambiguate things. And I think also that adds to their strength because if you use a lot of context, typically you are better at disambiguating things, even if they're very subtle. But um, they might also overdo it sometimes. So I think like humans, they can take into account a lot of context, but if you force them, they can also provide a very local interpretation. And what I mean by a local interpretation is basically like uh, what we have in arithmetic. So the meaning of seven plus two, it doesn't change. Like it doesn't matter if it's next to eight or 20 or if it's multiplied with something or whatever, like it doesn't matter. You can compute it completely locally without any context. Natural language doesn't work like that. And I think it's a very big challenge to understand at what level of locality you need to be mm. and when. Because even, so when you think, for instance, about idiomatic expressions, like at that point you need to, you need to see them as a unit more than the individual words, but still the individual words are used compositionally-ish in, uh, in other kinds of contexts. And you can resolve things by saying, okay, whenever I disambiguate, I can take into account the entire sentence. And this way I can provide the best translation or prediction or whatever. But that at the same time, like if you, if you do it like that, compositionality doesn't really seem very useful anymore because if you need everything to compute the meaning of a sentence, then what does it mean compositional? And this kind of paradox in a relation of locality and, and globality, I think is something that is... Uh, that is very interesting where we can still make uh, make quite a lot of progress. So yeah, it's like getting at this idea of in this example with the, was it black cat and brown dog? 
there you could kind of decompose the local parts that get combined into brown cat. Whereas in general, it's not as easy to decompose into these local parts. Is that kind of yeah. the idea? Yeah, actually, even in that example. So I thought, okay, this is a super, super clear example. Then I started, then I was, then I thought, okay, I'm giving a presentation about this. I'm going to put this in a slide. So I put this, <laughs> I put this uh, black, black cat. And then I put a, I put a brown dog. And then I started to make a brown cat. And then I thought, okay, this, I would definitely not call a brown cat. Like it's brown, but I would call it like maybe an orange cat or even a red cat. <laughs> Even though the colors in the picture were very similar, so I thought, okay, this is like a very good illustration of how far that, how far that problem extends. Like we think it's very logical that we can recombine these kind of things, but when you really consider the actual world, world also, even to understand what is brown, you you need some disambiguation in a way because a brown table might be something very different from a from a from a brown dog or the yeah. For cats, we don't often use the word brown, I guess. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just my sense of language, but I, I found it kind of funny that even with that example, which was meant to be very, very trivial, I, I already ran into that. Yeah, problem. yeah. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of great things in the thesis and there's like different interpretability methods, like these um, like single neurons you were looking at. Uh, there's this idea of guiding models, but I, I did have a question about these guiding models, if you want to go there. So about the guiding models, I think that this actually, I'm also quite excited about that uh, particular topic. So this is something that I think it was in 2018. At some point, my, um, my supervisor, uh, William, he said, you know, we have these diagnostic classifiers, but can we not also invert them and use them to improve models? And what I think is, is nice about that is, so probing classifiers, diagnostic classifiers, they have been under uh, quite a lot of scrutiny, people complaining that they don't actually tell you anything, that you can also predict these things from, from random models, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that there's a lot of, like, this is, this is very true. Like, if you're not careful with them, you can draw a lot of conclusions that are absolutely untrue. And what I like about them the guidance or the interventions, we call them diagnostic interventions. So what these diagnostic interventions do is that you train a diagnostic classifier to predict a particular property. Then you invert it so that you improve the model's representation of that property, at least if your diagnostic classifier was correct. And then you continue processing and you check if that has an impact. And what I think is very cool about that is that if that has an impact, to me, this is this this pretty much wipes away some of the arguments of that your probing classifier, your diagnostic classifier, that things that they had picked up on were not real. Because if you can use that classifier to adapt your model and it has some causal effect down the line, I think that's a, that's pretty clear evidence that what you found was actually a reality to the model. And to give an example to make that a bit more tangible is where we use this is in um, language models that we were testing how well they could do subject-verb agreement. Then with the diagnostic classifiers, we found out that it seemed that when they made a mistake, something actually already seemed to go wrong at the encoding of the number of the subject. 
So what we did then is we trained a diagnostic classifier to predict the, the number at the position of the subject. We inverted the diagnostic classifier, updated that, and then we just pretended like nothing happened and we continued processing. And it turned out that that did not only not mess up the, the language model, which it could have happened, right? It could be that you update your representations and it just doesn't work anymore. So that didn't happen. So language models still work very well. But also we had a massive boost in accuracy of predicting the right uh, verb further down the line, which I thought was a, was a very cool result. And recently I've used it also in another paper where we were uh, investigating inflectional, inflectional morphology. So I think that's a, that's a very nice tool to, to use to check your, uh, your diagnostic classifier probing mm -hmm. results. I see. And then here you did something where you tried to modify the attention patterns, right? Is that related? Ah, the attentive guidance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was also a nice uh, a nice uh, project. Yeah, indeed. Um, so this is also in the context of uh, of compositionality. There we worked also in a synthetic uh, uh, test that was uh, proposed actually at at uh, Facebook AI Research mm -hmm. at the time. Um, that was also like a super stripped down compositionality test where we showed that if you guide the attention that you can very easily solve that. So it's not that that solution isn't available to the model. It's just that it doesn't find it when you train it with standard backpropagation without any guidance. And I think this has been used also um, by some others, but in very different contexts. Like for instance, they would use eye tracking data to guide the attention to basically have a way to insert some, some information about what humans are doing. Yeah, I like this because it's kind of a, um, there's like a philosophical aspect to it too that, or maybe it's like mathematical that, you know, there's many different hypotheses that will be kind of consistent with the data and the network's not necessarily going to choose the one which is compositional, but it's not that it's impossible to do that. It's that here you kind of have to give it this guidance towards that particular solution. Yeah, I like that too. And I also like the nice analogy that you can make with human learning, where when you when you teach a child how to read, for instance, you also don't just give it Harry Potter and say, go figure it out, <laughs> right? Like you maybe point to the words when you say them out loud. And this way you also guide their uh, their attention. Right, yeah. So this is so the technique itself is not uh, it's not very scalable, of course, because when do you have this kind of guidance available like in, if it's a symbolic task that might be very obvious but in many other cases it's not but still i think it makes a it makes a very nice point indeed about that it might be that some solutions are available but they're not they're not learned when you don't provide additional guidance and then so in terms of this connection with humans is this something that you're going to be interested in looking forward or um yeah yeah, absolutely. I think that this, for me, it's one of the most exciting points is when um, interpretability research actually leads to some new hypotheses that you can then also test in humans. So there, uh, this is something that I think it doesn't happen enough yet. Like it's something that's very often mentioned, right? Like, I don't know, reasons for interpretability research, like, ah, this way we can understand the model and make them 
also ethical considerations, make them more fair, or then we can understand the model and we can use it to inform uh, hypotheses about human processing. And I would love to see more of this uh, of this kind of research. So I have one paper in which we do this uh, very directly, which is actually it's actually a sequence of papers. It took like three years, I think, to uh, <laughs> to make that happen. So this started from us analyzing a language model on subject-verb agreement and discovering that uh, the mechanism that it uses to process long-distance subject-verb agreement is super, super sparse. It's just one or two neurons. Now, this has some implication for the type of constructions that, um, that models can process. Namely, uh, if you have just one neuron that's representing a long-distance a number relation, number agreement relationship. This means that you cannot put a long distance relationship within a long distance relationship because your neuron that is processing that is already taken. And when you test this, you see indeed um, that if you put a long distance relationship inside a long distance relationship, that the model fails on the inner one. Which is interesting because that's actually the shorter one. Like those are much closer together, but the model is using its mechanism f to, to process the outer one, and then the inner one is just a chance level because it's it cannot yeah it cannot do that anymore. And then we thought, okay, actually, when you look at humans, it's not that we can do a ton of nested dependencies in a row. Like in theory, we say that that's possible in language, but then it's not that we can actually process these things uh, without pen and paper <laughs> and keep track of all the relationships. So we thought, okay, maybe this is something like this sparsity or semi-sparsity is something that it might be that also humans have a have a sort of sparse representation of, um, of these long distance relationships. So then we formulated an experiment uh, with humans that uh, like a psycholinguistic experiment, which which by the way is also something that if you have a transformer model, that would be very difficult to do, or a mass language model, because they don't share this processing, so the inputs would be very diff different. But in this particular case, what a language model is doing, you can easily transform that into a, a psycholinguistic experiment. Actually, these subject verb agreement experiments were motivated by what the type of experiments we're also doing with humans. So. Um, I will get to my point. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we tested that also with, uh, with humans. And I think that this is, this is very exciting, like being able to do tests with, uh, with humans that are motivated by interpretability work with neural networks. And what we, I mean, we found, what we found were some, um, there were some parts where it's um, also the humans were worse in the interdependency than on the other. So that I think is is very interesting, but they were much better. So they definitely didn't go back to uh, go back to chance. So it's not that they're using an, a mechanism that is that sparse, but I think that this really it makes you think about okay, what kind of what kind of processes might be going on in the human brain, and it's it's not that we know that. So yeah, it's that's definitely something that I would love to to do more of. Yeah, that is fascinating. This was part of the thesis. The thing about the two neurons in the long distance numbers, right? Yeah, that part, yes. The human study, not we did it afterwards. <laughs> There's maybe like a footnote saying that we were working on that because I was super excited that there were no results yet, so I couldn't include it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. And then like, so there's this connection with human cognition in general. Um, so now that you've 
you know, finish the PhD. Are there a- any other directions that you want to highlight that you see your research going in? Is it kind of extending off of your PhD work or going in new directions? I think that so since I have this very, very clear interest in particular aspects of language, I think this is also what I, what I keep coming coming back to. So even though I've done projects in slightly different directions overall, I think it's it's fairly consistent. So and I think it I, I will also definitely keep working on that. Recently I've been looking a lot at uh at machine translation, which is something I actually also looked at in my master. So in that sense it's not even new, but I will definitely stay on the hey, what is structure in language? Can neural models process that? Is it even important? Or maybe we have, we've have we gotten it wrong about language in the, uh, to begin with. Like these, I think, are very exciting topics. And there are a lot of topics that are related to it that I might explore, but that is really the core that I, I feel I keep coming back to. Yeah, this has been, this has been a really interesting conversation. And um, I think just in the name of time, we should go to the final two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. So the first is about objective functions. So if you could think back over the course of your PhD and describe an objective function that was, uh, you know, guiding your research or your interests or your general um, PhD process, what would that objective function be? And do you think that your objective function has changed now? That's a that's a, a very nice question. I think so. I I have always in my in my in my head that in the like in the very long run, and I think that might not even be in my lifetime. What I want is uh, is is just to understand really how language works, and um, unfortunately, I don't. Like if I actually knew the objective function, maybe I could get there in my lifetime. But I, I feel that what I'm, what I'm doing is maybe more sort of a random search that I feel is going uh, sort of in that direction. So I'm, I'm not sure if I have a, if I have a very clear objective function when it, when it comes to that. But I have very strong intuitions about what I find interesting, and I, yeah, I let myself be guided by that a lot. I'm not sure to what extent that. Answer your question. No, yeah, that's good. That I think that is the objective in and of itself is to like search for the objectives that line up with where you want to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meta objective function. Cool. And then um, the last question is uh, sometimes the hardest. So, if you could think of one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it could be just a simple heuristic. Or it could be some big, grand piece of advice, uh, but just one thing that comes to mind for a new researcher starting out. All right, I think so. This is maybe also a bit of a sort of meta advice. So of course, there is always that you should find the stuff that you do actually interesting, because otherwise it's going to be very, uh, it's going to be very tough. But I think the thing that, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently is that when you do research, I mean, maybe this is also like this in other jobs, I don't know, but I, I know that it's very strongly like this in research, is that you, it feels like you're always um, working on the next thing. And after that, maybe you you can take a bit of rest. Okay, it sounds a bit, it sounds maybe a bit too, too negative when I put it like that, but the piece of 
advice that I think I would like to give is decide how much time you want to, um, how much time you want to invest and how you, how you want to approach it. Because you can think after my master, now I'm very busy. I'm going to work very, very hard. And then after my master thesis, I, it gets, it gets quieter. I've heard many people say that. I've heard many people say that also about their PhD. And then it's going to be the next uh, ACL deadline or the next whatever deadline. But that actually never mm-hmm. stops. So I think it's very important to also to keep enjoying doing research because I, I really enjoy doing research. But sometimes I really have to tell myself that I shouldn't constantly tell myself that I can be temporarily very, very busy and then... I won't be busy anymore because that's not going to work like that. So I can decide that that's the level of busyness that I want and have to accept that, but that's only going to change if, if you do something about that. So I guess the advice is don't, uh, don't overwork yourself. <laughs> yeah. And to some extent, maybe also what you're saying is that like, realize that if you're in this for the long run, then it is the long run. And so try to come up with a strategy which is sustainable instead of one that's just specific to like a short-term goal. Exactly. So maybe maybe you should just cut out my answer and uh, and do your uh, your your ten second rephrasing of it, which was all, much all clearer. All I do in this podcast <laughs> is uh, ask questions and then rephrase. So it's uh, <laughs> you do the hard part. Well done. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So that, that was really great. And um, thanks so much for taking the time to do this conversation. Maybe I'll tweet out some of the uh, figures that I was looking at as we were talking through like these definitions of compositionality, because I really did like those. And yeah, so thanks so much for coming on the thesis review. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I when I when I was writing the thesis, I was a bit annoyed that I had to make this into an entire book because it seemed like, OK, no one's ever going <laughs> to read that. So it turns out that that was not true. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy now that you, <laughs> and very honored that you took the time to, to read my thesis. So thanks a lot for that. Mm-hmm. Thanks.